Welcome to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast for September, later September 2017. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Shiny's Sacrifice. And my name is Andy Schatz, and my game of the week is not Freeze Tag. <laughs> Freeze Tag, is that, that's not a computer game, Andy. I mean, that's okay. <laughs> uh, when's the last time you played Freeze Tag? <laughs> Uh, I don't remember, uh, um, but I do think it's actually a fantastic game. It, it's certainly better. It, it, it's kind of like that point in childhood when you go beyond, hey, let's just run around and be crazy, to, you know, what if we introduced rules and structures and parameters? That's like a first step to becoming a gamer. I think, I think, it, I think it's the first – it's like the first rules variant that you learn. It's like the capture the flag of childhood. And there's some territory control aspect to it as well. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> sure. My my, I have a, a two, nearly three year old daughter, and her first game was that. Uh, and I was so proud when she said, "Daddy, I made up a game for you." And then she told me that the rules of the game were close your eyes and then open your eyes. And I was like, "You're not there yet." <laughs> did, how well did you do in the game? Did you win? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I destroyed her. <laughs> it was not even close. It's an important childhood lesson. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Andy, you guys, uh, speaking of making games, what on earth is going on over there that after Monaco, which is this, uh, you know, a cool stealth uh, game with asymmetrical characters, that you guys decide to do a real-time strategy game? What yeah. happened? Well, okay, so um, uh, I would argue that Monaco was actually probably more of an outlier for us than Tooth and Tail. Uh, Tooth and Tail is probably closer in spirit to things that I've done in the past, and it's inspired all the way back from a game that I was working on um, uh, in in college with a college buddy of mine back in the late '90s. Um, so, uh, but but uh, what is interesting here is that, and and I should probably do a quick intro of what both of these games are in case anyone's not familiar. Sure. Um, but uh, the the interesting thing is that they both share a a very close design vision, even if they're completely different um, genres and different art styles and different worlds and everything. Um, but but I think that people that that get to know us and and probably when we come out with another game, people are going to be like, oh, I get it. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so Monaco is this uh, co-op heist game. Um, it's like Pac-Man Cross with Ocean's Eleven, right? So you play it from a top-down perspective. You're running around gathering coins, and uh, it's sort of maze-like. Um, and there's bad guys that are chasing you around. And each of the different player characters has different abilities, but that's sort of a next-level mechanic. Um, and it's it's got a visibility mechanic in there, and and um, but the thing that's that's unique, well, one of the things that's unique about it is the control scheme is extremely simple. Um, you, in order to interact with things in the environment, and the environment is quite complex. Um, you don't push a button. You don't have a variety of different um, uh, um, context-sensitive buttons that you press. You just push your character into the objects that you're trying to interact with, um, and those objects define the the uh, the behavior, you know, their own behavior inside the world. 
Um, so sort of a one button game. There's a there is one button that you pull, and it's sort of like your power pellet. Or um, it really it's actually inspired by Geometry Wars. I always called it the oh shit button. Um, <laughs> That uh, you you don't frequently use it, but occasionally you you know things are going crazy, and your instinct is to, to pull all the triggers or to push all the buttons, you know, and that's where the design comes from. Um, Tooth and Tail um, is a, of course, totally different genre, although um, it's so it's based on real time strategy games, particularly like the ones from my youth, like uh, Command and Conquer, Command and Conquer Red Alert, Warcraft Two. Um, and uh, the way I remember playing those games, and it probably would not be the same today, but I remember them as games where you had to invent strategies, where you had to improvise. Um, and uh, I remember them as games where the controls were simple. And that maybe was simply because I didn't use the more complicated units that had spells and things like that. And it didn't matter because I was just playing against my, my buddies or my roommates or something along those lines. Um, you didn't really have to learn all of the complicated stuff to win. Um, and and um, we really wanted to bring back this idea of real-time strategy being about improvisation and creativity which is really what Monaco is about. We have we have a big speedrunning community with, within Monaco, even though the coin positions are randomized, and it's not a game about muscle memory. You can't just use your muscle memory. You have to be good at the game, and it requires you to improvise um, and be creative on the fly. Um, and so we wanted to do the same thing with a real-time strategy game. So we boiled down the controls to something very, very simple, something that once you learn them, you can... You can play without thought. You can you can play within flow rather than uh, you know worrying about being ultra fast with your your keyboard, um, and then and then really push you to be creative and improvise uh, your strategy. So uh, um, and then we built the whole game around that concept. So the matches are super short. So that if you if you try a weird strategy and it doesn't work, it's okay. You just play another game. Um, and uh, the maps are random, so it forces you to be different every time. You can't memorize a, a perfect build order for this map. Um, the uh, the before the match starts, you define your army rather than picking a, a, a race and then uh, using a preset, you know, a, a, a preset tech tree. Um, you get to choose any six units, and your opponent gets to do the same and is blind. So. You don't know what they're going to have. So you're going to be forced to improvise when you find out what they're they're playing with. So anyways, that's that's sort of the through line. Through line. So that raises a bunch of questions for me then I have about uh, why you d did things certain ways. Uh, why was it important to you guys uh, that the matches are as short a as they are? Because I can't think offhand of, of any – I know of certainly some streamlined real-time strategy games. I know some that – that try to sort of streamline out that build-up phase early on, uh, that try to circumvent any standoffs at the end. I can't think of anything that is as short or succinct as a, as a game of tooth and tail. Uh, how difficult was it to make that? And, and still, because there's meaningful gameplay in that short amount of time, how difficult was it to make that, and how much was that an early part of what you intended to do? Yeah, we, we had that from the beginning. We said five to twelve minutes per match, um, and we're we're finding that in uh, sort of low tier uh, um, competitive play, it, it can be even a little bit shorter. It, low tier play tends to be very aggressive uh, because early mistakes can be punished pretty easily. Um, 
but of course it depends on your matchup. Um, but yeah, we had that goal from the beginning. Um, one thing we've always, we've kind of said during development is that, that, uh, we, we want a hearthstone Starcraft. Um, and, uh, it's funny because if you look at Blizzard's design philosophy with every game outside of Starcraft, they have taken a, a, another popular game and they've made it more accessible, more fun and faster. Um, with Starcraft, they went the opposite direction. And it's so odd to me that everyone else competing in the real-time strategy space, uh, um, their first instinct is we want to go even bigger, even more epic than Starcraft. <laughs> um, uh, because, I, you know, in my opinion, you, you, you're probably unlikely to, to out Starcraft Starcraft. Um, and, uh, and so we kind of we decided to go the other direction. But we also wanted to make sure that there was the entire dramatic arc of a of a competitive real-time strategy game but just crunched into a short amount of time um and it works for us because we 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 didn't entirely eliminate the the necessity to be good at the controls there's still micro in our game but to some extent some of the micro is replaced by the fact that the match is just super fast um and so uh um that that sort of benefits us because it's less about micro and more about fast thinking, which to me is more in the spirit of real time strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, yeah, we've we've found some interesting. We fiddled a lot with the economy to make sure that you know matches. Uh, um, you know, we wanted a bell curve on our matches where where uh, you know the the majority of the games went to a two base uh, game. Some you know and a a smaller, you know, maybe a quarter of the matches, a quarter of the matches are one base, a quarter of the matches go more than two bases and, and half the matches go about two ba- bases. Um, and the farms at your bases run out after five minutes. So it forces you to expand. So, um, uh, you don't start with all your farms. So if you, you know, a typical match is like a, a six, seven minute match. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, we fiddled a lot with the economy, even with like the, the tiers of units we wanted, um, about a third of the matches to never see the, the high tier units at all to end before mm-hmm. they get to the high tier units. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, it, we, we really did a lot, um, to fiddle with these things to try and get those, um, those numbers where they are. And a big part of that is that we had a very active alpha community for like three years now, um, just playing the game continuously. One of the things that's, that you mentioned that's super fascinating to me about this game is the economy because it's not uh, it's not a matter of I need to grab all the farms. When you play something like Age of Empires, those little gold deposits, like those are super important. And if the game doesn't end prematurely, if you both last long enough, you're going to end up fighting over those different farm nodes. And early on playing Tooth and Tail, I kind of felt like, oh, I need to grab this grist mill so that he doesn't. Uh, but there's not really any of any of that because the game is so short. And I'm I'm super glad to hear you saying the matches generally are two farms per player because I kind of felt like I, I'm not getting enough of the farms. I'm not doing well if I'm not grabbing all of those farms. Right. And it sounds like you never intended me to get most of those farms. No, yeah, definitely not at all. So this and isn't like a territory control seize the map game. Well, it can be, and and a big part of this is that um, we uh, we really wanted to empower players to play with their own style, um, and 
um, you know, a lot of people are scared off by StarCraft um, or other real-time strategy games because they don't like to be aggressive. Um, now, our game does require you to be aggressive, uh, just like all, all these other real-time strategy games. On the other hand, we want to, to empower people to experiment with their own play style and then use the surprise of that play style to their advantage. Because we, we, we talk a lot about poker um, when it comes to design here, uh, that, that we really try to emphasize the idea of um, a player who is unpredictable or a player, um, uh, a player who can read what the other player is doing is going to have a huge advantage in the game. Um, and not, of course, not every strategy is going to be a viable strategy in the game. On the other hand, uh, there are players who can play with a, a mostly defensive structure uh, army or deck, we call them, um, and make that work. Um, you can uh, grab additional mills um, and make that a part of your strategy. You probably can't grab all the mills because that it, it'll just be most of the time that's a waste. Um, but uh, but we do have players grabbing multiple mills, using mills as decoys. It's like you know you build one. You build one on the opposite side of the map. Try to get the opposing player to see it as a as a you know an undefended target. They bring their army over there and attack it. And meanwhile, you're you're getting into their production. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things you can do like that. And and really, we're trying to leave it open to the players the players' particular style um, rather than having to to play within a particular meta. Um, mm-hmm. So to empower that as much as we can, uh, we really try to empower the idea of. Uh, unpredictability um, winning matches um, so if you you know if you know what your opponent's going to do there's there's usually or hopefully always something you can do about it um, all, also all of those mills are scattered around the map because with the random maps uh, it, it turns out that many of them are really not very good <laughs> so right, right. You, have to, you have to make that you know you have to make that that uh, decision for yourself uh, the economy also is notable for uh, how limited it is. Uh, I can't just sit on one – you can't really turtle in a way. Like you can't just sit on that one farm and expect it to keep cranking out food. And it's kind of a rude awakening too as you're learning the game uh, is you will you will bump into starvation. And you'll be like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I, I'm about to lose the game because I didn't I didn't make more farms. Uh, so your, your economy is also a little punishing in that you're, you're going to make people run out of food. I guess that's partly to keep the matches short. Uh, but it also reminds me of uh, – like it's not an infinite economy map. There's only so much food that you can cull from each map. And if you're not out there culling that food from the map, your units are going to starve and you're going to lose. Uh, that's kind of mean. <laughs> well, yeah. There's probably two reasons behind that. Uh, um the first, and, and I actually do think this is the lesser reason, but uh, but we probably would never really move away from it for, for this reason. And that is uh, um, when you get a lot of units, um, individual units in the game, uh, um, because they're AI controlled uh, to some extent, or they have their own AI, um, uh, we don't have a, a hard unit cap. Um, if we allowed for infinite resources, we'd have to add a hard unit cap um, uh, be, just because the game would just die. um uh but um on top of that um so uh turtling is turtling is absolutely viable you just have to turtle fast um you've got to have it's it does require a sense for um uh for what your opponent um 
is is doing, and then you also have to know when to strike. If you never strike, um, the only way to turtle and not strike is to intentionally try to stir, starve your opponent out. So if you identify in a particular map that you're going to be able to successfully control a choke point such that you now have access to more than 50% of the remaining resources on the map, then you can just turtle that. But if, you, but if you're only going to do a one-base turtle, uh, you'll lose to a good player unless you also build the ability to strike. So, for instance, I actually was literally – I was just playing a game with our community, um, and I, I won uh, one of my, my favorite turtling matches I think I've ever played. Um, uh, he um, – I – I stayed in my base. I built a small army, um, but it was a small army with that that was able that was going to be able to counter his invading forces. Mm-hmm. So he came and he built a, a mill right outside of the the one entrance and exit to my base, um, and and put a wall of turrets down. So he, he you know he cannon rushed me basically. Um, meanwhile, I was sitting at my base with units that could that could at least take out his invaders, and I and I. Uh, built some some flying units that were able to escape the back door of my base i made a suicide run over to his home base and uh rallied my my flyers over there they walked right around his turrets and went and took out his base um and then and then came back and took out his mill near mine um and and so sorry i know that for for people who don't know the game that won't mean anything um but i wanted to describe an instance in which you know what i did is i you know i i you can you can stay in your base, make him afraid. If you can make him afraid to to make that sort of final strike, um, there are ways that you can you can break out, um, especially if he tries to invade and and loses his army. So it's so if you're going to coil up like a snake, you'd better also have teeth. Sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, um, yeah, that that's I guess that would be the the, the turtling strategy in the game. One of the things that I wonder about when you're describing that game right there uh, I, and how the flyers can move over otherwise inaccessible terrain, my first thought there is, well, wait, they can't do it unless your general, your, your flag bearer, can, can pull them across it. Uh, you, you have in this game the, the flag bearer is the focus of the player's attention. It's what the player is looking at. It is also the player's control cursor. Uh, however – uh, there's a couple of things about this flag bearer that I'm curious about during the course of development and what it was and wasn't going to do. Uh, first of all, it has no powers. Mm-hmm. It can't attack. It can't – I guess it draws fire, and that might help in some instances. But for all intents and purposes, it's not a battle unit. It has no effect on the battle. It's just almost literally a scouting eye. Yeah. It's a, a, it's a, would you say it's your mouse cursor? Yeah, yeah, it's like your cursor because it's where you're clicking oh, you to tell units to go. Pun. You missed my pun. It's a now mouse. because of Hopper, right? No, of course, <laughs> right? And I'm a super Hopper fan as well. Yes, of right. course. Cool. Good. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so, uh, well, th- then this gets at a couple of things. I I love Hopper so much, but Hopper does absolutely nothing in terms of gameplay, and I, I don't know that it's a missed opportunity, but it's a clearly opted out of opportunity you guys didn't give the factions any gameplay 
unique elements. None of the flag bearers affects the gameplay in any meaningful way. And that StarCraft model that people look for is the Protoss play one way, the Zergs play another way. There's nothing like that, and it's clear from the outset that that's not the kind of game you're making. But why isn't that the kind of game you're making, particularly uh, given how much world building you do with these characters? Right. So uh, that's a really good question, and I have I have answers for all of this. Uh, we do get that we do get that as a question or or even a request. Um, pretty well, often. I can totally see people thinking, "Oh, this is I should be able to cast spells with my flag bearer." Or, right. yeah, I can totally see people having an expectation from other games that the flag bearer should do more than it does. And one of the games that I mentioned that I adore that this reminds me of is a sacrifice where your your flag bearer, your little wizard, was a hugely important support unit. Uh, right. So I can completely imagine players coming to Tooth and Tail thinking. Why didn't they do this? They should let it shoot lasers or whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, um, uh, boy, I got a lot to say about this this subject. So, so stop me if I no if run I, with it. Run with it. I want to hear this. <laughs> um, okay. Well, let me let me start by saying that uh, there was a point in development where we were working on um, a uh, an ability that was a per per uh, faction ability or mm-hmm. per commander ability. Um, and we were trying to use it as a counterpunch. So the more we were trying to come up with some mechanic that uh, allowed you to um, that allowed you to, to to have comebacks based upon a commander ability. So um, at the time, it was based on how much however much damage you took, um, your army took, gave you um, filled up a meter, and then eventually it unlocked an ability for you uh, that that made you for a short time ultra strong in some respect. Um, we found early on. Um, that uh, these powers were either going to be uh, too powerful and too too def- too sort of match defining, mm-hmm. or so not powerful that they seemed weak and lame. Um, and uh, s- similarly, the what we kind of always said, even before we added that in, um, with regards to giving the the char- giving the player character an actual weapon. Uh, we always shied away from the idea of giving the character an a- actual weapon. And I know there are other games that have done this, um, you know, something like uh, Air Mech. Um, but uh, um, what we, our philosophy on this was that if you give players a hammer, they're going to want to to swing it. And if, they, if you give players a gun, they're going to want to shoot it. And they're going to assume that that is the primary focus of the game and that everything else is support. Um, if you, if you are going to give them a weapon, you're probably, it's probably not going to be satisfying unless you give them multiple weapons or weapon options. Um, and the more you go down that road, uh, the more that's what the game becomes about. Um, you know, I know, and this is not a knock on Airmac because Airmac is, you know, Airmac is its own thing. But I know when I first started playing Airmac, and I think, I think even the tutorial starts this way. The first thing they they do is they teach you to to, to attack, right? They teach you to move around and attack things. Um, and only later on do you get to the idea of secondary units, and and do you get to the point where the secondary units are the things that are give you real power, right? That the the units over which the units which you have secondary control over. Um, and um, that it was really important for us to not get bogged down in this idea that um, 
uh, that the player character was um, was the the singular focus on a battlefield. Um, we we felt like it held up pretty well within the context of uh, historical warfare, um, in the sense that um, the flag bearer in in uh, like the Civil War, the American Civil War era, and and really the last war where the where there were flag bearers was World War One. Uh, and they they phased out over World War One. It didn't apply anymore once they sort of moved into trench warfare. Um, uh, but um, in in the American Civil War, the flag bearer did not carry a gun, uh, or if he did, it was you know he was you, you had to hold the flag with two hands. Mm-hmm. So you were not shooting a gun. You were at the front of your army, and it was so incredibly important because these battles were dusty and muddy and a mess, and not everyone was necessarily wearing wearing uniform, and if you if your flag went down, if your flag bearer was shot and the flag went down, your army would have no idea where to shoot. And at the same time, if you're holding the flag, the enemy knows exactly where to shoot at the guy with the flag, right? And so there are stories of heroics with these flag bearers or battles where the flag the flag bearer was shot and killed twelve times, and someone else kept just picking up the flag and advancing the army. Um, and, and often they were the most heroic person on the battlefield. Um, so, uh, um, the, the other, the other sort of side point to this is that, um, we carry forward a philosophy that we, we went with on Monaco in Monaco. You're not, you can't have two characters of the same type. Um, you can't have two moles. You can't have two gentlemen. Um, we, we wanted it to feel in world, um, rather than Street Fighter, you know, where you've got, you know, you've got two different doll seams or whatever it is, right? Um, uh, and and so we wanted to maintain that that idea that these characters are really in the world, and they they, in order for them to be in the world, they or in order for them to have animosity, they need to be different characters. In order for them to be fighting against each other, they need to be different characters. And so we we maintained that character exclusivity. Um, and because of the character exclusivity, um, that also meant that players, if, if the, when the commanders had abilities, it meant that you weren't always getting, going to get to play with the ability that you wanted to play with. Um, ah, right, right. And, uh, and that, we felt, was a real problem. Um, so uh, we, we could have also given the ability of like, hey, you get to choose your ability too. Um, but it, it doesn't you know, the abilities seemed like they should have been tied tightly to the lore of the character themselves. Um, it, it really helped us. There was a, there's an article about Towerfall, the, uh, um, uh, the 2D side-scrolling uh, arena fighting game, I guess. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, but in that one, the, the characters are purely an aesthetic choice as well. And um, they... Uh, they wrote that they, they found that players ended up, at least their segment of players liked this, the fact that it wasn't tied to ability because it'll, it allows their players to role play more if they are choosing their characters strictly based on who they like rather than what their play style is, is most like. Um, right, it sort and, of frees up, uh, it frees it from the burden of gameplay in a way. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the that's the long-winded, multi-pronged answer to your question. Uh, when, so, it, the characters, um, 
it's a fake language, right? Like nobody yeah. in there is speaking actual. So how did you guys come up with a, a fake language like this? And how do you work with the voice actors? Because uh, the little Hopper chick, she's just so precious in terms of how <laughs> completely earnest and she's she's this revolutionary spirit. Uh, tell me about this fake language and how you got voice actors to sound like they were actually speaking a real language. Right. So uh, originally we we called it. Originally, we called it Rushlish, so you know about the Sims. <laughs> like Simlish, yeah. Yes, like Simlish, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, we we do like leaving this to, the to some extent as a puzzle for our players, but it is translatable to English. Ah. Um, so I don't want to give too much too many details on that. It was invented by our uh, audio director Kevin Regami, who is the, the uh, co-founder of Power Up Audio, who's also responsible for Crypt of the Necrodancer and Darkest Dungeon, the audio in those those games. Um, that that explains a lot, Andy. I mean, the guy who did the audio for those games obviously is deeply invested in how audio works. So yes. sure, yeah. yeah. And our our voice actors are absolutely amazing. Uh, Hopper was voiced by Caitlin Berso, who uh, does voices for My Little Pony, um, as well as some other things. Um, Bellafeed is uh, was done by Jason Simpson, who um, is a character in League of Legends. Um, uh, you know, we have a we we have a really broad variety of of characters that voiced uh, voiced all of the various different characters. Um, Kevin, our, our audio guy, um, uh, prepared an entire recording of how to pronounce all of the lines. Um, uh, for each of our voice actors before they arrived at the studio. Um, and amazingly, they all just absolutely killed it. It was just crazy. Well, um, I can so, imagine, too, if it wasn't just random, if there was this sense of this is what this means in English and this is how the language works. If you share that with them, it makes it easier for them to understand what they're saying. Then that must lend uh, a lot to what they're able to do with it as, as actors. Well, yeah, usually quite often in the recording studio, they would start by um, – by, uh, just getting the line in monotone first, and then they'd have to act the line, right? And, and they have to act it with the inflections and the intonations and in the right spots. And also, Kevin, I, I got to say, is an absolute Nazi about about uh, pronunciation and making sure that they were pronouncing it uh, true to the um, the language. Sure. On top of that, Hopper, this is the silliest thing. Cause, so uh, I think I, I had to go into work on a weekend, and, and my wife says to me, wait a second. And I had to go into work for, on a weekend for a specific thing because we were, I was working on Hopper's script. Uh, and I was going in to – I'd already written all of her lines, but I had to go into the office to take all of her lines and adjust the pronunciation such that she was speaking in a colloquial English, a clo colloquial English that would then – because the translation – wasn't wasn't going to work to literally just translate it one to one. We came up with new rules about how colloquialisms translated, and then translated those into our language, which is called Yashal. Um, so my wife was like, "Wait a second, you're going into the office on a weekend, leaving me with our two-year-old <laughs> to, to, to write." <laughs> to adjust the lines <laughs> to be slang such that they can be translated into nonsense. Let me just get this straight. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, yes, that's you. You are describing the situation accurately. <laughs> well, does this have to do with how Hopper says things like 
like those and that instead of these and that? Like, is, is yes. that what you're, I tell, exactly. you tell your wife that that's a fundamental part of what makes Hopper <laughs> so adorable. So you tell your wife that your work that weekend paid off that I, that I said so. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of airlines also that like uh, everyone seems to love, love her. And, and uh, um, part of that is that I sort of intentionally infantilized and infant infantilized what's the word uh, uh that word i know it yeah yeah because it. because i i uh, you know it was right as my daughter was learning to to speak and so i used a lot of the idiosyncrasies um uh that she had um like she she always used to say mine instead of my so the you know um whatever it is uh That's great your daughter was your muse for hot yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and snacks she she didn't oh like, the snacks oh my gosh of course yeah. it's like a baby wanting snacks of course yeah. that's yeah. what that is <laughs> well then this leads to something else that I want to know about Andy because um how did this universe come about because you guys I wonder did you ever so Monaco has this great rich universe and there's a lot of cool narrative stuff that unfolds as you play Monaco about who the characters are and who they are to each other um I could almost was this ever considered an extension did you ever consider making this an extension of the monaco universe or were you monacoed out or you didn't feel it wouldn't fit because uh, you rebooted like you you started a completely new universe here when you already had a really rich universe uh why start with something new uh, well i love the monaco universe and you never know maybe one day i'll return to it um uh i wasn't so much burnt out on it as as uh really the the game engine had just become unsupportable um uh, so it was, it was just kind of time to move on. Okay. Um, as far as this universe, uh, never, I, I never, it's an interesting question because I never actually considered, uh, Monaco for a real time strategy game. I, I'm not sure how well it would work. It, we're talking about open warfare here. Um, uh, I, um, it started, um, we went through a, through a few iterations of theme, um, and typically my design philosophy we we went a little bit of a reverse on the, on this game in terms of uh, um, the way I like to design. Uh, typically, I actually like to start with a a um, a theme and allow the mechanics to flow from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Monaco, it's heist movies. You know how um, you just look at the mechanics in a heist movie because heist movies are really mechanically driven um, and they have so much in common. Every heist movie has so much in common with one another um, and pull those mechanics. And how do you make those? How do you then use well-known game design language in order to, to um, express those themes? Um, and also how, what, how can you, how can you let it speak from theme first? So how do you start theme first? Mm-hmm. Um and we really did go the opposite direction here. Uh, and I, I do tend to look down on the idea of, of uh, mechanics first, simply because mechanics first, um, uh, you can end up with theme that is so divorced from the mechanics or feels slapped on. Um, and, uh, and, and also you can end up with stuff that feels derivative of other games. Um, of course, with this game, we sort of intentionally went into it with the idea that we wanted to make something derivative, that we, we, we started off saying we want to make uh, soul food, um, you know, something that is or comfort food, as you say, not soul food, uh, comfort food for RTS gamers. Um, and, uh, and so we did go through a few iterations on, on wildly divergent themes. We thought, for a little while, the, I was thinking the game was going to be named Valhalla All-Stars, and it was going to be the idea that 
uh, in Valhalla, that's where warriors go to die and they get to go join the great battle at Ragnarok or whatever. But if, if that's really true, then warriors across all the ages would be there. And so your units were going to be, you know, warriors from from the beginning of history until until the future. Um, and we went through. By the a, way, if you'd use that name, Andy, I would have assumed that it was a MOBA. Yeah, I would assume right. anything called Valhalla All Stars. Yeah, that's a MOBA. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> right. So and, and at the end of the day, I'm, I'm super glad we didn't do that because it's like, yeah, OK, a bunch of bro guys, you know, fighting each other and would have been a far, far right. less. <laughs> um, but uh, um, uh, I, I do like history, so it, it appealed to me to some extent. Um, but uh, I think it was our um, a, a, a big fan of Monaco that ended up doing some web development for us was actually the one that made the suggestion of backyard animals. And that clicked for me because I'm a, I'm a huge animal fan. In fact, before Monaco, all, all of our games at Pocketwatch Games were about animal ecosystems. Um, so I really, really love animals. And, I, and it was so cool because I was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. There's so many mechanics you can draw out of animals themselves. And one of the big problems if you're trying to pick up a real-time strategy game for the first time is you don't know what the units do. Um, but you know what a skunk does? You know what I mean? Sure, right. Yeah. You know what a snake does. Um, so it it really gave a nice uh, entry point for people that are were were new to the game. Um, on top of that, and that's really where the game world drew its inspiration from. The idea that, well, if you're thinking about backyard animals, you know, crows and squirrels and pigeons and whatever it is, cats and dogs, um, it's not a pleasant world. It's, it's really not. We think of nature as a peaceful place. But think about the life of, of a, a small woodland creature. They are, you know, they're in constant fear of a, of a cat killing their children. The, a pigeon is just flying along and it runs into a window. I just had, just the other day, I had to pick up a pigeon in a paper towel and throw it in a dumpster. Can you imagine this in, in human society? <laughs> I just saw a dead, there's a dead body sitting outside. Oh, just pick some, so just go pick it up in a paper towel and throw it to the dumpster. Yeah, um, your your wife's on the way to school and a lion kills her. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. I know, right, right, right. It's yeah. it, the animal, the animal world, and and a woodland animal society is not a pleasant one, and it's based hmm. on fear, and it's based on food, um, and uh, and. When we started talking about sort of the historical context of this, uh, we really drew a lot of inspiration from the Russian Revolution, where, you know, the, the Russian army is off at, at war at World War One, and the, the people in the cities are hungry, and the farmers are starting to hoard food because the, the, um, the military is, is requisitioning the food and sending it to the front. And so the people in the cities are starting to starve. And this is what eventually, and and the 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 um, the nobility and aristocracy is is of course um, uh, really out of touch with the populace, um, and and this produces revolution. So so the idea of a food shortage um, uh, causing revolution, and in this case, of course, we take it even darker. I remember talking with my sister, and I said, and I said, well, what are some what are some wars? Because we, we, we did start from the idea that this game should be fun. We wanted it to be really fun and, and lighthearted. And I, was, I, sa- I said to my sister, what wars are fun? Because she's a real history buff. She's like, a fun war? I don't know that there's been a fun war. And I said, okay, how about 
just joking when I said, how about World War One? How about the Russian Revolution? Were those fun? And she's like, oh, yeah, those are the most fun wars. <laughs> Wait, why, why are those fun? What, <laughs> no, they're not. Pulling you? They, oh, they're, right. They're okay. still on my leg, right? <laughs> because they are, they, they are probably, you know, the, the American Civil War, World War One, the Russian Revolution. Those are some of the most dismal, dark, awful wars. Yeah. Because they're in this period of transition, bef- you know, before the Geneva Conventions, um, before... Uh, before we really had rules to warfare, but when we already when we started to develop weapons that made warfare really awful, and so uh, it just seemed, you know, maybe may, you could say too soon, too soon on the World War One jokes, but we thought that the contrast between just the absolute dismal darkness of that and also the bright, cheery happiness of uh, of you know goofy animals. Um, would be a, a, a really fun thing to try and take on and tell a story about. Well, I'm sure you you, you may not know this, but you, I mean, Animal Farm was a was a Orwell writing about the Russian Revolution as well. I mean, Animal Farm, this sort of the quintessential idea of hey, what if cute animals were used as an allegory for the brutality of human beings? That's Animal Farm right there, and I can't help but think of you guys doing that. You're telling, you're making an RTS about violent rev- revolution and, and, and starvation using cute little animals. Uh, and, and of course, the, the title, uh, the, the whole idea of red and tooth and claw, which I, I assume is Shakespeare or something, uh, that's exactly what the title, I think, reflects. Like the moment you see tooth and nail, you think, oh, yeah, that red, that saying mm-hmm. red and tooth and, and claw. Um, and, and there's actually even more meaning behind it. Uh, there mm-hmm. is a military term that is actually actively used, still actively used, called the tooth-to-tail ratio. And the tooth-to-tail ratio, this is used by the American military, the tooth-to-tail ratio defines how efficiently you can uh, um, get the uh, the supplies needed uh, for your frontline troops to the front lines. So it is all about uh, the economy and uh, both, you know, the ability to translate economy into offense in a way. Right, logistics, and right, right, logistics. right. And that is what a real-time strategy is about. Um so, yeah, I just assumed of- you guys were like going with the fact that a squirrel had a bushy tail or something. <laughs> no, it's both. I mean, it's all, all, all right, right, right. Of course, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> well, what? Well, at first, it was like this is completely random. These little animals in a in a sort of Eastern European revolution that makes no sense to me. But the more I played and the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh yeah, of course. This <laughs> this, this is a, this is a beautiful synergy of. Of, of theme and, and setting and mechanics and cute little animals for a reason, evoking Animal Farm. And uh, so it seemed random to me at first, but I, I think it comes together uh, very well. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, we, we uh, the story itself, if you get, if anyone gets into the story, is really a story about uh, the, uh, the crossover of, or how, um, how one's uh, um, personal, uh, worldview and those that are close to you uh, affect your views on what is right and good uh, for all of society. Um, And the different factions all have, of course, different approaches, which typically benefit their their faction of society. Um, And none of them are wrong, um, but uh, in this particular world, it's a bit of a zero-sum game. Uh, because whoever loses is going to get eaten. 
<laughs> Let, let's talk about this story then, because I, I've always asserted that a real-time strategy game has to be three separate games in one package. There's the multiplayer game, there's the skirmish against bots, and there's the single-player game. And you guys certainly provide all three of those. You, you're not. Uh, there's no dereliction of duty here in terms of presenting a full-featured RTS. Uh, let's talk about your single-player game. Uh, it's it's a set of of scripted missions. Like it, I. I a lot of times get turned off when I see an RTS where the campaign is what I would call canned missions. Uh, you guys script special rules onto dynamic maps uh, right. for these story missions, and it's not canned. And one of the early uh, patches that you released, you said we need to uh, smooth out the difficulty level on some of these missions, which is fair enough. But I, I wondered uh, how much of a challenge is it when you were – putting these missions on these procedurally generated maps, like how much of it is, it's not so much that the mission is difficult, it's just that you might roll up a difficult map for this mission. For that instance, lot, there's yeah. one map, there's one mission, and I think this might be the one, one of them that you guys wanted to uh, lower the difficulty level, where the enemy is just spawning uh, – unit producing bases all over the map and you have to run around it's like whack-a-mole you have to run around and knock them out and it took me several plays getting that until i finally got a map where i could capture where i had enough territory covered by my bases that there were only a few pockets where he could be building up uh little bases of his own and i could i got a rhythm going back and forth to knock them out but until i got that set up that was a really difficult mission for me so i kind of feel like is it that the missions are too difficult, or is it that the maps are procedurally generated? Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, um, yeah, that is the, probably the first mission that we got. This was I, I nerfed this one actually prior to launch. And tell me this the name of was, it too, because you have super evocative the, names for these missions. I love knowing the names. What do you know? The one, the one, yeah, the one I believe you're talking about is the Siege of Ragfall Road. Okay. Yep. Um, and. Uh, um, a uh, reviewer from a particular publication um, emailed me saying, "I just it's it's a fairly early on. It's actually the, the I think eighth mission in the the, the twenty four mission um, game, and the first five or so missions go pretty quickly because there are a lot of tutorial in them. Um, uh, and I had a reviewer saying that they just they they got completely stuck." They couldn't move on. So I uh, I was like, well, I'll show you how to do it. So I was going to record a video for him. And um, oh, you actually you guys have a series of the, the video that you sent for reviewers is actually publicly available, right? Where you it is now, you yeah, demonstrate yeah. a solution for each story mission, right? Right. Well, and, okay. and those ones that I uh, I've released to the public were really inspired by this first one. Mm -hmm. Um so I, I, I sat down to record a, a video of myself showing him how to beat it because I'm thinking to myself, one of the one of the the challenges that we have here is that the the, the missions are are uh, or the maps are the terrain is procedurally generated, uh, the AI of course is dynamic, so you don't know exactly what they're going to do. So you we're talking about balancing, you know, eight different counterweighted objects and 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 trying to get it to the point where it's going to have the same difficulty level every single time you play it is that's an impossible task. Right. Um, uh, on the other hand, um, uh, so, so when I, when I went to go record this, this, um, this playthrough for the guy, it took me three times to beat it. And, <laughs> and in my head prior to playing it, 
and I was so frustrated. I was recording myself, and I was like, see, this is how you do it. You do this, how you do it, how you do it. And I'm like, oh, crap, I'm going to lose. And I'm like, okay, stop recording, restart, do it again, pretend like it's your first time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it took me three, I think maybe even four times to do it. And by the fourth time, I was like, I was like, I, I, I have to admit this is a very, very hard mission. Um, and in fact, I, I, uh, this is hard enough that this is, this is too hard for this point of the game, and I'm going to rebalance it. That said, here's how you do it. And, and so I still, you know, I, I gave him that recording. And going through that process um, uh, made me realize that, you know, with my previous playthroughs, we did a lot of focus testing on missions one through six, so I was pretty confident that that was going to be fine. The focus testing that we did with the rest of the game, we only did with our private, with our most trusted private alpha community, and they already knew the game very, very well. Right. And so um, we we probably didn't get great um, focus test data in terms of difficulty level uh, out of that group. Um, and I'd played through the single player campaign, um, you know, a bunch of times, probably at least six times. And I also had implemented and designed all these missions as well. So I, I felt like I'd had a pretty good sense for it. Anyways, after this happened, um, and we got a couple more complaints about uh, some, about difficulty spikes. I was like, uh oh. So I spent a, a you know I spent a day recording all of these missions again, um, uh, doing a walkthrough for all of them. But my my little ulterior motive was to try and figure out if there were any others that I missed in terms of difficulty spikes. Um, and lo and behold, uh, I, I did find a couple that I wanted to nerf, and I did. And but lo and behold, there was one mission where I, I, I happened to get a really lucky spawn on that, and it seemed totally easy. And I put out the play guide, and but then everyone in our Steam community is like, I can't get past Howling Bell. I can't get past Howling Bell. It's impossible. And I was like, What are you talking about? Here's like here's my playthrough. And then and and then I was. On Friday, we do a regular stream on Twitch, and I was like, okay, everyone's complaining about Howling Bell. I'm going to do it live. And so I sit down to do it, and I couldn't beat it. I tried five times, and I absolutely <laughs> could not beat the darn thing. So our second, our 1.02 was, we called it Howling Nerf, um, and that nerfed down that mission and, and uh, um, a few others. We also discovered we discovered some interesting things with, with difficulty. Um, uh, time pressure makes time pressure uh makes it so that players are um far less able to learn mechanics if you want players to learn mechanics don't give them a time pressure ever 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 um and so in some of the earlier missions uh so we have these secondary objectives in the in the mission. Every every mission has a secondary objective that that forces you to, to either perform particularly well or play the level in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we, in the early early missions, we um, ended up discovering that we were better off using the the heroics uh, the heroic ob- objectives that's the secondary objectives as a teaching mechanism. And um, but. In using those as a teaching mechanism, so asking players to do this one additional task in order to get the, the achievement, um, uh, people got in their head that they should be able to perform the heroic objective. So once we switched them back over to the original philosophy about what they were, and the original philosophy was you're supposed to play through the game once without getting the heroic objectives, and then when you really get it, the heroic, heroic objectives were our version of difficulty settings. 
So the replay value kind of. It's yeah. the replay value. So if you want to play on hard mode, you go for the heroic objectives. Um, but because in missions one through six, we use them as teaching mechanisms, once they got to mission seven and all of a sudden it was the ultra hard mode, it it made them real mad. So so we had to create a ramp for uh, for those heroic objectives where they converted from being a um, their difficulty uh, converted from being a teaching mechanism into into ultra hard mode. Um, so uh, um, yeah, your question was about how hard it was to balance all this randomness, and and the answer was um, well, we haven't really accomplished it. Yet. It's still a work in progress in a way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is is getting those heroic missions? Um, is there anything waiting for me at the end of the game where I'm going to wish that I had all those heroic mission, all those heroic objectives accomplished? Like, do I get a bad ending or anything like that? What nope. What is nope. the fallout for me not doing or doing the heroic objectives? Uh, achievements, pride, S- steam achievements. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that, that's fine. That's enough for me. Like, <laughs> this, you put a steam achievement there. That, that's that's all I need. Uh, <laughs> um. So the multiplayer. Super streamlined, super easy to get into. However, in the single player, you've got all of these cool map script things, these these map tweaks. Why can't I use some of those in my single player games? Uh, we are I mean, in my multiplayer games. I mean. Yeah, we, we are going to add them. Uh, um, the the single player um, uh, was um, we always knew that in talking to our friends at at, at uh, a variety of different companies that make real-time strategy games. Um, we have heard that the data suggests that even for real-time strategy games that are well-known for their multiplayer, something like 85 to 90% of the player base never plays multiplayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we knew that single-player was um, going to be extremely important to us. Um, at the same time, we spent the first two and a half years of development um, only really making the syst- the controls and the multiplayer work really, really well. We didn't have a, a bit of single player in the game until significantly later. And, and, and probably to some extent that shows in the tutorial, the tutorial is not the most polished tutorial ever. Um, we, we put together, I, it certainly wasn't rushed. However, um, when we finally sat down to say, okay, we're doing this, guys. We're making single player. We're, we're, when we thought to ourselves, we really only have time for like four missions. We can make four missions, and they'll mostly be variants on the existing skirmish modes. Um, and uh, but they'll they'll we'll have four missions, one for each faction, and they'll be very replayable. And that's what we're going to do. Um, but I sat down to start coding it, and they just started coming out. And we just started getting, you know, we were just getting mission after mission after mission. And we did some research into popular StarCraft single-player missions and pop other popular real-time strategies. So we definitely, like, you know, we ripped off mechanics out of a lot of others. And then we we tailored them to suit our, the particulars of our game and then, and then started coming up with new things as well um, that were really particular to our game. Um, and, uh, and then made them fit within the story, etc. Um, but at any rate, the single-player stuff was coded extreme like in a furious in a fever dream mm-hmm. um and uh and it's not um it's not clean and stable the way things need to be to be in multiplayer um but uh we are going to start rolling that stuff into with the multiplayer um probably it'll be the first 
um, sort of content patch, I, I would call it, um, will be to uh, start rolling all of those multiplayer features and art assets and everything into multiplayer maps. Now, uh, I don't... there. There, was there DLC sold for Monaco? I don't think there was. No, was there? we we had a bunch of free uh, DLC, so we we doubled the size of the game post launch. Right, uh, right, but none of it was uh, like separate DLC. Sell that, right? So what I'm wondering is, surely you've had people whisper in your ear, you know, Andy, you could sell new units as DLC. Uh, have any of those people whispering in your ear convinced you? Uh, I I don't have anything uh, philosophically against the idea of DLC. However, um, uh, community is um, uh, community and sales really uh, um, feed on each other. So, um, uh, building community and uh, is about also building community is also about retaining community and retaining community means giving back to your community because your community is giving things to you. Um, and so uh, for now we're really focused on adding as much free stuff to the game as possible. I, I, I don't, I certainly am not ruling out the idea of uh, doing paid content content in the future, but um, we're never going to do any sort of like a paid to pay to win type of thing or anything like that. Um, I've never bought a piece of cosmetic DLC in my entire life. On the other hand, <laughs> I don't look down on people who do because some people like it. So right. maybe we'll do something like that. Who knows? But it's not um, uh, it's not really in our DNA. And to some extent, I, I think games typically in order to make paid DLC really work within a game, the game's ecosystem needs to be needs to kind of. Uh, be centered around that from the ground up. So, uh, um, you know, one obvious one I was thinking I was considering was we may add an entirely new campaign, a co-op campaign, and maybe you know charge five bucks for a for a co-op campaign or something along those lines. Um, that's more of a, a expansion pack than it is a uh, um, you know a, a DLC. Um, so yeah, I don't have anything against I I. I have bought expansion packs when I was a kid and, and thought they were great, you know? Um, so, uh, I, I don't have anything against the idea of, of, uh, building products and charging money for them. <laughs> on the other did, hand, I, I really want to focus on community building. So did, do you have in, in mind, like, like does tooth and tail seem to you like a game that paid or otherwise, uh, could use more units? Not, not could use, more. does it seem like it's a game that has, uh, hooks available where you could put new units in? Oh yeah, absolutely, okay. and we hope to. We definitely hope to do new units, and and I, I do have a thought in mind that if we ever did convert to a free to play model, um, uh, a thought in mind for for how that could work. Uh, um, but uh, it, that stuff is so far down the road. It's fun. To, it's fun to talk about it, but it's probably all just. It's it's probably never going to happen. So you know, it's it's all just theory. But but per, but but maybe a year from now, when I go in to play a game of Tooth and Tail, and I choose my six units, maybe I'll be choosing from twenty five instead of twenty. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the thought. And and beyond that, we're going to be adding in like the campfires and a lot more map generation types and uh, um, rule variants and things like that. Um, and and we are planning for seasons in the um, in the rank ladder. So oh, we'll sure, set, sure. reset the stat at some point. Stats at some point. And introduce uh, new map types, or um, you know, introduce campfires, or whatever it is, and we'll test all of it in unranked first to make sure people like it, make sure it feels balanced, um, and then and then roll that stuff into ranked. 
uh, and do it on a, on a per season basis. Now, I'm afraid I don't know what campfires are. What are campfires? Oh, all right. So if you once you get uh, into the second half of the, the single player campaign, um, the uh, there are these campfires scattered around the map, and they they um, uh, they act as a single ter- small territory uh, that also uh, you basically uh, there's a pig that gets stuck onto a spit over a campfire, and um, it's a it's like a small um, resource expansion um, object around the map. So, um, uh, you know, I remember back in like the total in total annihilation. Um, I don't remember the specifics of the uh, the economy exactly, but what I do remember out of it is that there were sort of primary uh, mineral deposits and then kind of secondary ones that were scattered around the map. And the secondary ones were worth taking. But you, but not really worth defending, and sometimes not even worth attacking. And so that's kind of what these campfires are. It's like a single farm. It gives a little bit of territory, and um, and uh, but um, if it's out of the way, maybe maybe it's not worth attacking because it's only the value of a single farm. Right. Um, right. But it, hopefully, it introduces a lot of sort of instability into the um, uh, the meta of the game um, in the sense that, um, uh, you know, it, let's say it, it costs the same as getting another farm. So uh, let's say you go and you scout your opponent's base and they appear to have one farm less than you expect them to have. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that means they're being aggressive towards me. But what if it's just that they discovered a campfire somewhere in the world sure. and they claimed that? So adding more uh, hidden information and more instability into the early game such that we, um, ask players to play even more conservatively. Um, uh, it, I will, I think, really add to the game. Now, before I let you go, there are three things I want to ask you about real quick. Yeah. And anybody listening, if you are someone who I will ever play tooth and tail against, I would like you to now turn off the podcast. <laughs> Because, Andy, I have three units that I'm not quite sure what to do with them, and I want from you some tips for how to sure. use these three units. Okay. So, okay, everyone, the podcast's over. If you've ever played Tooth and Tail with me, bye. Come on, so long. All right. How do I use the matriarch best? I love the concept of her, uh, and I think she outranges a lot of defenses. Is she like a siege thing? Tell me how I should be using – how can I get the most out of matriarch? Okay, so the matriarch is an owl, a giant owl that uh, um, has eaten all of these mice, and the mice are in the process of being digested. And they're traitors. The mice deserve to be eaten, yeah. Yes, but she is, she is, uh, she is benevolent, and she is willing, if they are willing to repent, she's willing to puke up these mice such that they can go off on suicide missions. Now, they're half digested, so they're, they're essentially zombie, crazy zombie berserker mice. <laughs> um, a lot of times, uh, Andy, when I'm playing, I'm like, no, I told my squirrels to come back. Oh, those are the puked up mice. Like, yeah, like, yeah. like that's why they're attacking and they're not responding. Exactly. Yeah. So the mice don't respond to your to your uh, your controls. Now, I probably get some of the numbers, the specifics of the numbers wrong here. But the, uh, an individual mouse uh, – so the, the owl will puke up a, a new mouse every five seconds. Mm-hmm. And – an individual mouse, if I recall correctly, will live for 30 seconds before expiring naturally. So an individual owl can have six simultaneously living mice underneath her. The mice, as long as they don't have an enemy to attack, will follow the owl. 
Um, but if they have an enemy to attack, if they have an enemy within their aggro and, and vision range, they will go attack it. So um, this leads to some very interesting behaviors. Um, Can I now guess? Because I don't think I knew that. I guess yeah. the idea then is I'm supposed to let her charge up. Yeah, so there's a few things. So you can let so you can let her charge. And one other little unique mechanic is that when the owl dies, she drops like five mice or something along. Ah, her. I she, didn't know. She's that. a little she's a little pinata. She bursts with some five right. five mice. So, um, uh, so there's a few different um, subtle mechanics, and all of these t- the tier threes um, have. You know, we wanted the tier threes to be a little bit more challenging in order to use well. So the matriarch has has very you know, particular. Um, and, um, one of the cool things about her is that you can, um, uh, it's, it's in tooth and tail, of course, it's difficult to split your army and it's difficult to do multiple things at once because the, the commander is the one controlling your army. But with those mice, since they have minds of their own, you can use it really to split your army up. Um, and they'll stay and attack anything that they find. So, you could, for instance, um, uh, send you know send the mice in by getting them just within range of um, some enemy warrens, and then run away. But then those mice are just going to run around and literally attack anything they see, and so your your opponent's going to have to go back and start dealing with those mice because they're not go you know they're they're just going to go around and start killing things and. Even though the commander's not there, now you can take your owl back to your base to heal up, or you can take your owl to another part of, you know, to meet up with the rest of your. The army mice don't follow attacking. the owl. If they have an enemy, they will attack it. Ah, so, so even with follow- your, po- you can have a charged-up matriarch mm-hmm. drop five, six mice and attack, and then pull the matriarch back, and those mice stay there fighting what they were fighting. And they'll just go nuts. Yeah, exactly. Ah. Then on top of that, they, they are uh, the other thing to note about the matriarch is that she pukes up mice for free and she'll do it continuously. Um, so um, uh, of all the tier threes, she is the best late game when the economy is low, when you when everyone's running out of economy. Oh, sure. She is the best because she She's gives a new barracks. Units. Yep, she gives you free units. Um, and uh, so in low economy games um she's great um of course she's countered by anything that does area of effect uh damage like the boar or um uh artillery cannons um uh, but she's also great against things like landmines and toads because her units are free and a landmine or a toad self-destructs so every time a mouse explodes on a every time a toad explodes on a mouse or a landmine explodes on a mouse you've cost your opponent food um, or money, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, so it's a it's a great way to sap your opponent of of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's a complex unit. Very the very handy. Now, uh, also real quick, uh, Kasha doesn't shoot at defenses. I'm not entirely clear about what she can and can't shoot. The sniper units in the game do not shoot uh, stationary structures. They will. They only shoot units. Like not even balloons. Uh, like it has to be a, un, a moving yeah, unit. Okay. Yeah, it's a little. It's a little goofy. <laughs> well, no, no, it makes sense. Like I, pr- I appreciate the consistency of that bottom row. Uh, Kasha will attack nothing in the bottom row. That defense right. row is that correct? Correct. Correct. Uh, that that makes sense. I mean that that right there. That's a consistent rule, and that that helps me a lot. Yeah, uh, we, we tried to avoid the idea of um, you know in Starcraft there's like you know bio versus mechanical or whatever. And those are those are rules that you have to learn. 
um, uh, unique rule, unique off-screen rules you have to learn. We tried to avoid that and try to make sure that all of our rules are on-screen. And so we have counters like this can't hit flying units, but you can tell what units are flying units and what ones aren't. And or this unit can't hit structures, but you know what a structure is versus a unit. You know, are the chameleons the only units that can't hit flying units? Is there oh, someone else? No. There's a um, uh, well, the ferrets can't hit the the artillery. Not, neither the, the the mortar ferrets uh, and the artillery cannon can't can't hit flying units. Okay. Um, the owl, of course, can't hit flying units because the the mice can't. Oh sure, right. Um, the boar can't. The flamethrower boar can't. Ah, okay. Uh, uh, that I, I didn't realize that's a perfect. I didn't realize that was a perfect counter for uh, Mr. Butters. Then yes. Oh yeah. If you can bring a squadron of falcons. Uh, he he can't touch them. Um, and uh, um, yeah, basically only only units with projectile attacks can uh, can hit the flying units. Okay. Uh, okay. So the last two. Uh, what should I be doing with mines? I mean, I guess I have a rough idea. And they're cheap enough, and you can put them anywhere. But uh, give me a tip or two about how to use the mines. Landmines are the ultimate head game. Um, a landmine takes 10 seconds to build. Once it is built, um, it becomes invisible to the enemy and can't be destroyed except by sacrificing units on top of it. Enemies uh, see it being built, though? Like it's visible yeah. while it's you, Okay, that makes you sense. see it and destroy it. If you can see it and destroy it while it's being built, it's extremely weak. It only has like two hit points or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so, um, it is the ultimate mind game because the enemy, once the enemy knows that you have landmines and that you are using them, the enemy is going to start to assume that you've got landmines everywhere. And there's no stealth detectors in tooth and tail. Not, no, there are no stealth detectors. Awesome. Uh, and, uh, not only that, you can sell the landmines for full value anytime you want. What? I get all 20 food back? Yes. Actually, is so, that true of everything I sell? The cost of the warren is refunded. Not the creatures lost or created, but the cost of the warren is refunded in full, right? It is, unless it's damaged. It's, it, it, okay. it takes the percentage of its hit points that are remaining and multiplies that by the um, the value of the structure. The so, so a landmine is basically a little food cache as well. It's a little food cache, yeah. So um, what uh, landmines are great against players that are better than you. <laughs> um, it is it is the primary way that i beat uh, you know when i when i beat players that are better than me it is it is quite often due to landmines because it forces them to question what they know about me and my army it forces them to say i i don't know how big his army is i don't know how badly my my army is going to get destroyed by walking across his landmines right right um and um, and so it is the ultimate sort of mind game uh, uh, weapon. Um, of course, you don't want to invest too many of them be- because, you know, that's like having, you know, you want to invest your money in things that can attack uh, or things that produce food. You know, you want to put your money in the stock market. You don't want to put it under the mattress um, and, and putting, you know, putting your food into landmine just like putting it under the mattress. Um, so uh, um, but it does hide from the enemy exactly how strong you are and what parts of the territory uh, you are strong in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. All right. And then finally, the last one, uh, and then I'll let you go. I appreciate you spending this much time with me. The last one, and I don't know what to do with this, and I'm still not entirely clear about how it should work. Uh, 
bob wire or feather wires it's called in the game should, should i be building walls with it uh tell me a little bit about the best way to use the feather wire yeah it's this may go through a redesign although i've actually seen it used in competitive play lately so i'm, I'm happy about that we'll see if if we do end up going through a redesign on it um but uh um uh it uh, Featherwire cannot be hit by projectile weapons. It's the opposite of a flying unit. Oh. Uh, it can only be hit by melee units. Who are taking so, damage while they hit it. Yes, who are taking damage while ah. they hit it. Um, uh, that said, the melee tend to chew through it. You, you'll, you won't get great value out of it if you're, if you're fighting against someone who's using moles, chameleons, and to some extent lizards, although less so with lizards. Um, oh, will the freight unions artillery uh, hit it? Yep. No, they will not. Nope. Um, it's really – it is strictly chameleons, lizards, and moles, if I recall correctly. Those are the only units that can destroy it. I see. Um, uh, they can destroy it while it's being built, but once it's built, it's invulnerable to other units. Um, and uh, it's used for two purposes. Um, one is uh, you can use it to sign, kind of clog up a battlefield and make it a very unpleasant place for your opponent to try and fight. Um, and to do that effectively, you'll want to scatter them around. Um, uh, and it's not, that's not about wall building. So that is more about, you know, checkerboarding them around an area, um, that you, where you, that, where you want the, where you want it to be an unpleasant place to fight. Um, uh, I should say there's three different sort of approaches here. The second approach is the walls. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's uh, not very efficient if you're trying to build a 10 or 10, 15 tile wall, but if you have an area where you can build a three tile wall, you know, through a choke point or something along those lines, it can be incredibly effective even against the units that counter it. Um, and the reason it's, it can be good against the units that counter it, the moles and the lizards and the chameleons, is it slows everything way down. So even if you're getting attacked by something that counters the wire, if you've got some ranged units that can start to peck away at the stuff that is having to, to, to destroy that barbed wire, right. the barbed wire is the best hit point for per, per dollar unit in the game. Um, so it is, uh, it's just the ultimate tank, um, and it can only be hit by a few things. So slowing units down and... Um, uh, in, in order to and and helping to soften them up for your ranged units is uh, is is how you're going to want to use that. Mm-hmm. And and my units can my units travel safely through it? Yeah, they will not take damage. They will slow down. Um, okay. So quite often right. you'll want to leave a one tile gap. You'll if if you're if you do need to have if you do need your army to be able to travel past it, you'll want to leave a one tile gap. Um, and sure, that means the enemy will be able to travel through it, but they'll take damage while they do. Right. Um, and then if your army is just on the other side, they'll have to stop and fight you while they're standing in the middle of the barbed wire, which is, again, an unpleasant place to be. Um, so I'm now, Yeah, I'm now thinking of great uh, – okay, you've brought me around. I'm now, uh, brought, I've been brought around on Featherwire because before yeah, I was like, I'm not sure what to do with this. Uh, I'm never going to take this. I'll just take the hive, bullet hive instead. Like, if yeah. your opponent appears to be going squirrel-toed, uh, the barbed wire is, is, is great. Um, and if you've got good chokes, the barbed wire is great. Um, and, uh, um, there's, there's lots of uses for it later on. Again, you can just drop three down just near the front of your base, um, kind of spread out to just make it be an unpleasant place to fight. Right. Um, and, and it's a pretty cheap way to do that. 
Uh, and finally, as we're, we're going, I just want to let listeners know something that I discovered. You guys have a really nice replay feature in there. Uh, and just watching the AI play, like go ahead and like start a game and lose the AI, no big deal. And just just do your, the replay and watch what the AI does. Uh, like I've I've found that super helpful. Uh, it's it's and a I, lot of fun. Yeah, you can actually even if you start an offline or if you start an unranked lobby or an offline lobby, you can switch to spectator and then add bots. You can fill the the lobby with bots and you can spectate a bot versus bot match. Um, Whoa. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So now I could like set up completely different loadouts and see how the AI uses them. Yep. Oh, basically. Very good. All right. Uh, well, Andy, congratulations with this. I'm uh, super glad. I, I was just – this is super surprising after Monaco. I love it every bit as much as Monaco. Oh, cool. uh, I hope it does well for you guys. You mentioned you have regular uh, competitive tournaments. When are those and how can folks watch those? Uh, so our, our tournaments are, are, uh, have been set up by our community. Um, we just had one that was run by strawberry Speedruns. He was, uh, he ran a 64 player double elimination tournament. Um, and it was won by, uh, one of our players, uh, chip from space, um, who was probably the favorite to win the tournament from the beginning, but it was a really exciting tournament. Um, we have a two V two tournament coming up being run by, uh, a, a, one of our fan communities that's called clash of comrades. Um, so if you, um, look up clash of comrades on the web, uh, they just opened registration for the two V two tournament. Um, and, uh, we expect this, the tournament seemed to grow, um, uh, you know, the longer the game is out and the larger sure. the player base is. Great. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Andy. Congratulations on the game. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom.